0: Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, SecondStreet.org's Colin Craig talks about how radical environmentalists have helped Vladimir Putin. Robert Hewish has done extensive homework on why Putin and Russia are mostly protected from sanctions. Canada's food professor, Sylvain Charlebois notes Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the breadbasket of Europe, is everyone's problem. And Adrian Scoble of the BC Automotive Retailers Association applauds the BC government decision to remove the PST on zero-emission vehicles. So, let's get started. If you're appalled by Vladimir Putin's actions in Ukraine, consider how radical environmentalists in Canada helped enable the dictator. That is the opening sentence to an article we saw in post-media newspapers across the country a couple of days ago, penned by Colin Craig. Mr. Craig is the president of the Canadian think tank SecondStreet.org and joins us this morning to talk to us about this article he published nationally a couple of days ago. Mr. Craig, Colin, good morning, sir, and welcome. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to have you with us, Colin. Flesh this one out. Thou- I read the opening sentence as you wrote it uh, in terms of how radical environmentalists in Canada have and helped to enable Putin. And you go on to say that Russia is the third largest producer of oil in the world and the second largest producer of na- natural gas. Canada is the fourth largest producer of both oil and natural gas in the world. We play on the same field. We do,
1: absolutely, and I think that's uh, one of the big questions for the world is where do you want to buy your oil and gas? Do you want to buy it from Russia, which is going to take the profits and uh, do things like uh, invade Ukraine, pay for rockets and tanks? Or do you want to buy the oil and gas products from Canada, which we know Canada has a great reputation for humanitarian aid around the world. We help out developed nations We take those uh, tax dollars and royalties from selling oil and gas. We provide things like health and education in Canada. Mm -hmm. So I I think we need a more realistic discussion about oil and gas development in Canada because for too long, people have just kind of
2: poo pooed this
1: notion that uh, not producing it here doesn't have an effect on the world stage. It absolutely does. Europe is heavily dependent on oil and gas from Russia. And that's not changing anytime soon. We need to be realistic about this. Whether someone doesn't want to use oil and gas or not, it, it doesn't matter. The world is going to keep using it for decades. So we have to say, you know, do we want to buy it? For, want the world to buy it from countries like Canada, or depend on countries like Russia? And I think the choice is pretty clear.
0: Right. So now, uh, again, back to the to the the point of your article, which clearly got a lot of people's attention the other day, and you're you're definitely not alone in this this uh, school of thought. Uh, talk to us about the enabling, the the connect the radical environmentalists, the Canadian Greenies, to Vladimir Putin. It's a bit of a stretch, especially as they see it. But go for it, Colin.
1: Well, we just have to think about it. Every time someone proposes a pipeline project in Canada or LNG in D.C. and other oil and gas products, the environmental movement is there. They're protesting. They're blockading. They're doing all these things to obstruct development. And I don't think for a second that they thought, hey, let's let's block this and help Putin. I, I don't think that's been the intention. Right. right. But that, that's been the end result. And so this is why I say, you know, we need to be a little bit more realistic and practical. Whether people like it or not, The world is going to keep using oil and gas for decades. So we kind of say, like, well, what can we do to help the world wean itself off of, depending on countries like Russia? And I think there's a solution that moderate environmentalists can get behind, uh, as well as certainly people in oil and gas. And that is to start approving more oil and gas production in Canada so that the world buys more products from us. But at the same time, governments could take the, the billions of dollars that they would get in corporate tax revenue Uh, and and start to use that to pay for emissions reductions, to help pay to reduce emissions. And there's lots of different ways they they can do that. One is to support the the budding carbon tech sector that's happening in Canada where people Mm -hmm. are taking CO2 and they're turning it into useful products like additives for concretes, materials that you can uh, use for making carbon nanofibers to make things like bicycle frames, uh badminton rackets those types of things so i I think there's lots of ways that we could take those those tax dollars and use them to reduce emissions and put it towards good so the world can make that decision do we want to buy oil from from putin's russian and he's going to use it to do things like attack ukraine or buy it from a country like canada where they're going to take the tax revenues from it and they're going to use it to try to help reduce emissions around the world I, i think that choice would be pretty easy for most countries
0: yeah, and you mentioned, you mentioned Europe and uh, a rather dramatic, and you didn't include this, but I've already mentioned it on the program this morning, Colin, and that's this turnaround, particularly by the, the government of Germany, a really mm-hmm. a 180 in the past week with respect to, because it has been, you mentioned how dependent Europe, the European community is on Russian petroleum exports, both oil and natural gas. The most dependent European country is Germany the strongest country in Europe. So here you have an odd situation where the strongest country, the country most able to withstand any kind of pressure from Russia, is the one that's most dependent on Russia for its oil supply. Imagine if Germany was getting its oil from somewhere anywhere but Russia. Well, that's
1: exactly it. And, And this is why I think when you look at the world's response to what's happened with Russia in Ukraine, In most cases, they they haven't done the thing they could do to hurt Putin the most, and that is to stop uh, buying oil and gas from him. And they haven't done that because they can't. You can't just simply go to a new customer. If 40% of your supply is coming from one person and no one else can fill that gap, well, then you're handcuffed. So this is why I think we need to start thinking about this as soon as possible, because these new projects take a while to come on, on stream, but we need to be thinking about what can we do that's practical and realistic? How do we address the climate change issue while at the same time understanding this realistic reality that the world's going to keep buying this resource? And, I, you know, I just put forward an idea. I think it has a lot of legs and it uh, it could help uh, appease uh, both the moderate environmentalists as well as uh, certainly people in industry who could could benefit from uh, this. You uh, you mentioned
0: moderate environmentalists. Uh, The Environment Minister of Canada is not a moderate environmentalist. He is a former president of Greenpeace and uh, is very determined to, as much as possible, keep it in the ground. That's his school of thought. Now, his boss, on the other hand, uh, all about climate change. I wonder, however, as uh, the Prime Minister now goes to Europe, to meet with allies and talk about the realities that Putin has forced everyone uh, in the world to have conversations about. I wonder if you sense, Colin, any Mm -hmm. rethinking at all from the government of Canada with respect to its policies about development or at least the continuation of oil production in this country. I, I haven't seen it yet.
1: Um, but at the same time, I, I think that how, how could you not? I mean, it, it's abundantly clear what Putin is doing with all these dollars that he's getting from selling oil and gas. So sure, everyone needs to be having this, this uh, realistic, frank conversation about, hey, can we afford to keep buying from him? And let's assume a, a best case scenario, let's assume that Putin today magically decides he's going to pull all his troops out of uh, Ukraine and sign a peace deal. A year from now, five years from now, do we still want to be in the same position where we're buying oil and gas from this radical? Mm -hmm. And I think most countries would say, no, no, we we can't trust this man in this regime going forward. We need to start planning today to figure out who could be an alternative energy supplier. And as mentioned right at the top, we are awash in oil and gas in this country. We could be the ones that are filling that gap and producing ethical oil and gas. And like I say, I mean, all the projections are showing that oil and gas is not going away anytime soon. It's going to be part of the energy mix for decades to come. Sure. And I think we need to acknowledge that and say, okay, so what can we do to, to, uh, you know, make sure that we're doing it and producing it in an ethical way, in a way that can even help the environment?
0: Colin, you're in Alberta. Alberta government commissioned uh, an inquiry into the uh, activities behind uh, those who oppose oil and gas development and the continuation of uh, petroleum pr- production in, in Alberta specifically. Uh, the mm-hmm. report found that there were uh, influences and funding influences from abroad. I wonder, as you dug into the findings of this commission, were you able to connect any funding from Russia, DOTS?
1: You know, I haven't seen that. And what, what I've actually found interesting is I, I dug into this a little bit more. And, and what I found was that the United States, both Democrats, uh, Hillary Clinton, for one, as well as Republicans, have raised concerns about Russia funding environmental groups in the United States to oppose development there of uh, fracking and, and other oil and gas uh, activities. So happened in the United States. In Europe, the former Secretary General of, the, uh, of NATO has also raised concerns about Russia funding environmentalist groups in uh, Europe. So Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I didn't realize that that was going on in other countries. I thought it was sort of uh, more focused on Canada. But this is a concern, is that, you know, Russia's a smart player. And they realize that in a democratic country, you can fund opponents of oil and gas products or uh, projects. And then uh, you're taking out your competition. So he's, you know, he's... uh, mopped up on the world stage this country is doing quite well when it comes to uh supplying oil and gas that uh, the world's buying. and you know like i say it's clear we know what he's doing with the money he's buying rockets he's buying tanks he's paying for right. soldiers to march into ukraine and uh you know obviously it's, it's pretty appalling what we're seeing on the world stage right, right now and this is one of the the end results of uh canada's uh, energy policy and i think we'd be wise as a nation to uh, rethink uh, the direction we've gone and,
0: yeah, great to have you with us this morning. And Colin, just as a final question, because you, you published this article and I commend it to our, our uh, listeners this morning. It's a good read and a quick one. Are you even remotely optimistic that Canada can find its way through all of this to be a responsible uh, supplier of petroleum products to the world?
1: Uh, yes, in fact, I think we already are. You know, we've talked to people that's, that have worked in the industry all over the world and they will tell you that Canada is the top producer right now when it comes to the environmental standards in this country i think we could even grow that so that we become the dominant producer globally that is doing it continues to do it in an ethical manner and uh you know that the first way that we can get there is to buy it by talking about it so I, i'm really glad that you're having this conversation and hopefully it sparks a dialogue in
0: canada Indeed it does. Colin, great article. Thanks so much for writing it, and uh, thanks for getting up a little early on a Saturday morning to join us to talk more about it. It's good stuff.
1: No problem. Anytime. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, And to that end, we turn to our next guest, who wrote the following. When President Joe Biden released the first wave of sanctions on Russia, he vowed to make Vladimir Putin a pariah on the international stage for his action against Ukraine. Many have called the scale of the sanctions unprecedented. But let's be clear. The price Russia has paid for its invasion of Ukraine amounts to economic penalties against two large financial institutions, dozens of smaller Russian entities, and some of Putin's known associates so far. But how effective are such sanctions? Sanctions, rather? The simple answer is, not very. The author of this piece, which is entitled, Why Russia is Mostly Protected from Sanctions, is Dr. Robert Hewish. He is a professor at International Development Studies and joins us from Dalhousie University in Halifax. Dr. Hewish, good morning, sir. Welcome to the program. Yeah, good morning. Happy to be here. Well, it's good to have you with us. Uh, this is an interesting article. Uh, we've heard a lot about how Putin has anticipated well in advance the sanctions that were likely to be imposed upon him following this unprecedented aggression. So how immune has he made himself personally to say nothing of his war machine from the sanctions that are being leveled at him more and more every day?
2: Well, that's a great question, and those are the two areas that sanctions should always be focused on, who is leading the aggression and how do they actually execute it. So uh, on those two points, in this moment, despite the fact that sanctions have increased quite a bit, Mm -hmm. even in the last week than what it was two weeks ago, uh, when the original aggression in in the Donbass area uh, warranted a very gentle slap on the wrist from the U.S. government, what we're seeing now is a more... Uh, globally connected sanctions force against Russia but there's still a lot of holes to it and so here's a few of them uh in particular the uh, the the US led sanctions on Russia were saying that you know there's going to be no more financial transactions permitted between the US Canada's followed suit the EU as well and Britain mm-hmm. uh and that so there's just no more trading but There are loopholes in there. So, for example, in the U.S. case, if there's uh, uh, business matters that need to be resolved, you have a 30-day window. So they really don't hit hard at home until around March 17th. And on top of that, if someone does violate a sanction, well, now it's up to that government, U.S. government, Canadian government, to go out, find it, prove the case, and then bring it towards some sort of uh, a body that can actually impose penalty upon upon the characters involved so it allows for the the avoidance or the the continuation of funds to to go ahead before the uh, you know before the crime actually occurs so that's the one problem with it and the other thing is that since 2014 uh... russia had quite a bit of u-s cash and u-s treasury debt so the treasury bill that other countries buy to basically service the debt of the u-s well, in 2014, Russia owned $100 billion of U.S. Treasury debt. Today, it's down to about $2.5 billion. And by comparison, Colombia uh, in South America, they have $33 billion. So what Russia's been doing for the past 10 years is slowly moving itself away from dependency on the dollar to trade with... Military partners like India, economic partners like China, t- 10 years ago, most of that trade were in U.S. dollars, and now almost none of it is. So there's a back way to get these, f- these markets still available to, to Russia, to, especially to the military. And as for Mr. Putin, where his personal wealth and the wealth of right. his top dependents are, they're overseas. And particularly, as we've been doing more research on this in the past couple of weeks, we're finding some real big nest eggs of where the the top uh, oligarchs in Russia are keeping their stuff. And namely, it's the British Virgin Islands, Mm -hmm. Cyprus, Malta, Jersey, Isle of Man. All of these offshore tax havens that we were very critical about in 2018-2019 are the exact same locations that the Russian oligarchs are using to hide their wealth, continue to finance their way of life. And it's a way of life that Mr. Putin's governance Encourages.
0: Right. I wonder, Robert. Just as an aside, how much uh, the the efforts of the Russian government to immunize themselves from global sanctions can be undermined by the Russian people themselves? We see long lineups of. It, Russian citizens outside ATMs and banks, they just want to get their cash while the banks or the ATMs still has some, some cash in the machine uh, uh, available. Uh, yeah. as, as fewer Russians are able to access their own money and support their own lifestyle or just deal with the basics of life, um, that is going to create pressure internally that yeah. ultimately may have more effect on than the external sanctions. What do you think about that?
2: I think you're on the right track with this. I mean, just just think about uh, what's going on in terms of the latest round of sanctions that did target the two major banks in Russia that held what's remaining of their their U.S. cash. So as a result of that, the ruble has just collapsed uh, Mm. on Western markets, which means when the currency goes down, everything goes up. Uh, as we're hearing you know, in Vancouver, the high prices of fuel in the city are, are making people really hurt. Well, imagine Two bucks going this three morning, Robert. S- exactly. Imagine if it was six bucks a, yeah. a liter, right? And that's not going to be out of the question for Russian people. And when you start imposing sanctions that hit people on the dinner plate, that make energy and transportation, all, all, all of these things, and even access to medicines, More difficult. That is going to cause a lot of tension. But the problem is, when we look at it historically, and I'm thinking towards North Korea, Venezuela, and even Cuba, when sanctions are imposed on a target like that, and and people begin to suffer, they don't always turn against the leader. They can sometimes turn against the the people who are issuing the sanctions to say, True. what were we doing wrong? We don't agree yep. with this guy. And now my grocery bill gets more expensive. So what needs to happen here is to think about ways that sanctions can actually hit Putin in his wallet rather than the Russian people in their dinner plate. And I think if that's done well, the argument that can follow it Is to say, look at these guys who are flying around on private 787s, heading to Dubai. They're going to the to the Caribbean to move their assets around. This is ultimately public money in Russia Mm -hmm. that's been taken from Russian people and put in the hands of oligarchs. And and that's the suffering. That's the problem of the inequality. And if uh, that message can tie into it too, I do believe that people in Russia don't fully agree with what Mr. Putin is doing. And if they realize just how, how much wealth has been robbed of them and for this, this, this project of, of insanity that Mr. Pro- Putin is doing in the Ukraine right now, put that together and you, you will spark Russian resistance.
0: No question about it. I commend uh, my listeners to your article at theconversation.com, Dr. Hewish. It's called Ukraine Conflict, Why Russia is Mostly Protected from Sanctions. It's a great read, and especially on this weekend when our prime minister is heading to Europe to gather with allies and talk about an even greater degree of sanctions. Dr. Robert Hewish in uh, Halifax, thanks so much for doing this with this morning, sir. It's great to have you on the show.
2: My pleasure. I look forward to our
0: next conversation. Oh, Our next guest, uh, back with us on the program from Dalhousie University in Halifax, where he is the director of the Agri-Foods Analytics Lab. He is Canada's food professor. He is Sylvain Charlebois, and his most recent article in the newspapers of Canada, Invading Europe's Breadbasket is Everyone's Problem. Saying that food price inflation will stem from this conflict is an understatement. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, good morning and welcome back. Good morning. Good to have you back with us Sylvain. Flesh this one out for us. We talk about Ukraine, uh, we we know that we talk about. We grew up learning about Canada as the breadbasket to the world. Europeans learn about Ukraine as the breadbasket of Europe. Ukraine is the ninth largest producer of wheat in the world. Canada is is ahead of them, but only marginally. We we don't many of us in Canada don't realize what a massive producer of agricultural products Ukraine really is.
1: Oh, absolutely. The Ukraine uh, has been blessed with some really uh, ideal growing conditions. Uh, 25% of of the world's deposit of, of black soil is located in that region. So you can grow a lot of stuff very quickly and very efficiently. Uh, 25% of all corn exports will come from that region, uh, wheat uh, is uh, very important uh, for Ukraine's agricultural uh, sector as well. Sure. Uh, barley. So there's lots of commodities being produced. But also, I mean, what people don't realize uh, is that uh, the Ukraine, along with Belarus and Russia, um, are represent a, a huge fertil- fertilizer hub. They actually do export a lot of fertilizers, and farmers... Canada and elsewhere need fertilizers to increase yields and produce more commodities.
0: Sure. Would this not, though, be a bonus of some bizarre sorts for the Canadian potash industry, given that we are an enormous producer of that fertilizer?
1: Well, one would think that. uh, But uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in the air right now uh, when it comes to what's going on well, right here in our own backyard, uh, if you look at uh, the stock price of some companies like Mosaic and and uh, and Nutrien, they're way up. I mean, because we are expecting those companies to do very well in light of what's going on in the Ukraine. Sure. However, however, <laughs> that that sector is known to be very greedy. Uh, they tend to manage supplies. Uh, Tom Dilsack, the uh, Secretary of Agriculture in the U.S., actually early on in the conflict did actually notify fertilizer companies not to be greedy because they are known to have been greedy historically. So that's one problem. The other problem that we're facing right now, to be honest, is a potential strike at CP. March 16th, could actually see uh, we could actually see a strike affecting uh came pacific which could actually halt shipment of fertilizers and grains in the west uh, which is really problematic
0: and, and speaking of halted shipments, uh, Sylvain, it's also important to note that most Ukrainian agricultural products that are exported to the world are done so by sea. And my, and my understanding yep. of this is that uh, shipments to and from Ukraine are being blocked by Turkey and other countries. So that area or that access of supply is essentially cut off. Is that your understanding as well?
1: Exactly. Well, 90% of all shipments coming out of Ukraine would actually go through the Black Sea. And and right now, it's being blocked. Uh, So a big problem for, uh, obviously, the Middle East. And um, if we are to think about uh, grain shortages or food shortages, I would say that the Middle East would be hit first as a result of the conflict in the Ukraine, followed by Europe. But again, make no mistake, it will impact Canada. If a bushel of wheat is over $10 U.S., which is the case right now, well, wheat is going to get more expensive here, too.
0: Sure. And that will affect Canadian prices. And, of course, the supply line limitations are, are, are going to affect uh, prices as well because uh, the, the the demand isn't changing, but as supply changes, so do prices. That's the, That's the name of the game, isn't it?
1: Exactly. And uh, I know I've been getting some questions uh, the last couple of days. Well, if the Ukraine is out of the question, can we produce more wheat and and compensate for those losses? We can't. I mean, Ukraine, like I said, Russia, the Ukraine, Belarus are huge players and uh, the world needs... Uh, needs that production. Now, going back to the fertilizer issue, commodity prices are way up. Farmers could make good money, but they need affordable fertilizers. I'm just hoping that companies like Nutrien and Mosaic will think differently about about this conflict, about what's going, happening around the world right now. We need uh, We need farmers to really deliver and produce more grains this year. And if Mother Nature cooperates, and that's not always the case, as we know, yeah. Uh, but if, if Mother Nature does cooperate uh, with some fertilizers, we can actually do very well despite what's going on in the
0: Ukraine. Let's talk a little bit about fuel prices, Doctor Charlebois, because Vancouverites are horrified this weekend, uh, especially over Hi. on Vancouver Island, where it's a little pricier than here in, in on the Lower Mainland. But it's we're talking two dollar a liter uh, gas here, and likely an increase uh, going up rather than anything going down in the near term. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that as it you're connecting the dots, and this is an important one to connect.
1: Yeah, so fuel is likely going to be the first factor impacting our food systems. Uh, I mean, in North America, we truck everything around, including food. And so we are expecting food prices to be impacted by fuel prices. Uh, Everyone is noticing uh, different numbers at the pump right now. Well, Mm -hmm. guess what? Trucking companies are revisiting their, their pricing strategy as well. So that's going to impact food prices early on. If the conflict continues in the Ukraine, we do expect grain-based products like bakery, for example, to be impacted over the next three months. And later on in the year, again, depending on how long this conflict will last, we could actually see livestock being impacted. So the meat counter will be impacted, and, and then, of course, after that, it would be dairy. So over the next 12 months, so that's – I mean – I think the last thing we needed right now was a conflict in the Ukraine. Sure. It's, it couldn't happen at the worst time.
0: Yeah. Sylvain, not, uh, not a pleasant conversation to have, but an important one. And we are grateful for your time on a Saturday morning, as always. My pleasure. Take care. It is a, a weekend of $2 a liter gas for a lot of British Columbians experiencing this for the first time. First time I experienced $2 a liter gas was about... 20 years ago, when I first went to Europe and rented a car and went, oh, my gosh, <laughs> suddenly we've come, reality has caught up to us here in North America. And as a result, I would think this weekend, especially here in British Columbia, more drivers than ever before are at least considering the possibility of an electric or zero emission vehicles. Our next guest is part of a team that has been pressuring the B.C. government for years to eliminate provincial sales tax on zero emission vehicles and darn it if the bc government didn't oblige them in their budget just a few days ago adrian scoble is back with us mr scoble is president and ceo of the automotive retailers association of british columbia adrian good morning welcome back
3: hello good morning how are you sterling
0: I'm very well. Thank you, Adrian. This must have been welcome news. Not certainly one of the biggest items in the budget with deficits and other priorities, but it did sort of jump off the page at us. Uh, And again, this is something you've been lobbying for quite a while. Give us the backstory in terms of the involvement of the automotive retailers.
3: Well, we've been, as you mentioned, we've been talking to government actually about uh, the full life cycle of electric vehicles for quite some time. Um, obviously it 's the way of the future, and government is seriously behind it um i would I would say that we've been talking to them versus pressuring them um right. they, to put a finer point on it they're they're actually looking for industry feedback and you know how to get the product adoption um increased and they began with um, rebates on new vehicles sure. um, but then of course, once you 've got them into the pipeline, now what happens so you that's when it became um, obvious that government needed to turn its attention to used electric vehicles, pre-owned electric vehicles. And, Indeed. Um, and- mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, and we've, they've, they've been asking us, actually. It was uh, you know they, We spoke with Minister Ralston originally, and his ministry spoke back to us, and they've been trying to figure out it's not as easy as it appears on the surface to actually get the right program in place that doesn't have the wrong kind of sort of loopholes built into it.
0: Indeed. Well, the, the official line is, and I'm reading now from your website, effective February 23rd, the purchase or lease of used zero emission vehicles is exempt from provincial sales tax. And the exemption is in effect until 2027. This is a five-year exemption window, Adrian. Yes, it is.
3: And, and we're really pleased by that. Um, I think government's going uh, a little beyond our, our our expectation even. Um, We thought we might be able to get it for a couple of years and run as an experiment and give it a, you know, then sort of reassess. But they've actually sort of gone all in, but they've done their research. They know what they're doing. I I would have to tell you, they've been very serious about making sure that this program is going to work and that it was applicable. They wanted something very easy to, to do rather than, you know, having to go through a lot of paperwork or maybe have to get your money refunded uh, versus, uh, you know, a discount to, at point of sale, if you will. Um, sure. So that's well, where the, uh, the this idea for making it actually a PST rebate uh, came into effect.
0: Let's dive into the nuts and bolts of the of the budget to, uh, 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 item here. What zero emission vehicles qualify as used, for example, under this exemption?
3: Well there are some uh, some uh, re- I, I was going to use the word restriction but that 's actually true it, it's it's very wide open first of all battery electric vehicles um, and then they've also included hydrogen fuel cells so to say it's um, it is zero emission vehicles uh, versus just electric vehicles right, and sure. it also uh, it, it includes the plug-in hybrid electric vehicles. Um, so the, there, are electric, there, there are hybrid vehicles, for instance, that don't plug in to recharge. They only generate their own uh, mm-hmm. source of, uh, of recharging. Um, so those are not a part of the program. But all electric vehicles, hydrogen fuel cells and plug-in hybrid are eligible. Now, there there is a further restriction um, on uh, it, it needs to have, if it's a private sale, over 6,000 kilometers on the odometer. To um, so, as used, yes. If, if it's right. out of the used market, if it, if you're getting it from a a used dealer, um, that is a different. Uh, there's a different restriction on that, but but it's more open. So um, yeah, it's a very good and comprehensive um, program.
0: Okay. So now when will the exemption be provided? Once you, 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 look at the car, you do the test drive and you go, okay, we agree on this price and there's no tax. So wh- when does the no tax aspect kick in at the point of sale or at the point of uh, registering or getting your license plate? Where does that happen?
3: Well, buying through a, a licensed motor dealer, you'll be, it'll be instantaneous. It'll be at, okay. at, at the point of sale. So obviously, if you buy privately, you you don't pay sales tax to the person you're buying it from. That would be at, at when you go to register your vehicle. Sure. Um But the the best thing I would really say with a zero emission vehicle, if I was looking, I would be dealing with a licensed motor dealer, a a, a licensed used car dealer. By the way, all used car dealers um, are licensed in British Columbia under the VSA. Um, okay. Uh, so that that would be my strong advice. Um, you, you really do want to go through someone who knows what they're doing and uh, you know has the right information for you. And if you go onto our, we, we've got two websites. I think you're familiar with the ara.bc.ca. Right. There's also a site evfriendly.ca, um, and that one is very specific to lots of information about EVs and how to make choices and which ones to to look at.
0: One of the uh, other I things think- that, of course, this this increased uh, level of inclusion of zero emission vehicles in the mix, Adrian, is going to be, and you and I've talked about this before, and we're, we're moving off the budget to something else a little, a little further away, but not very far. Uh, and that's the notion of having skilled technicians available to service all of these new vehicles, whether they're bought new or uh, tax exempt as a used vehicle or whatever. They are a different type of vehicle requiring a different type of training for those who work on them and again the automotive retailers association has been leaning on the bc government for supervised training programs for all of those skills and uh, recently again uh, the government has come through with uh, announcement of skills red seal programs for people like uh, uh, ZEV uh, mechanics correct
3: correct they they are and um the colleges and educational institutions are are working now um, introducing programs to teach these properly and now recently the the they're looking at skilled trade uh, certification we're looking at it now with with government and it's going to take a little while to get all of the curriculum in place and make sure that, that everything is there so the the um, industry training authority the ITA uh, will be the governing body for that. And the government recently announced and they put into place um, a body within that group of oversight. So they will have people who are able to track who is and isn't qualified uh, to service vehicles and also um, to be able to make sure that they are. Basically, you won't be able to operate unless you're properly trained. Right. So we're just now seeing those first shops coming online. Um, Precision Auto out here in in Langley is uh, one of the first that I and they're actually building a new facility. Um, which will have the skilled labor in there to deal with electric vehicles there 'll be many more this is just the end of the wedge we 're seeing coming now
0: but and you 've got to start somewhere and you 've got to do it right right from the get go and it 's taken a while, but it 's starting to happen isn 't it it is, and you
3: you know you really nailed it sterling that that is exactly it it 's um i you know personally I, i'd love to make wave a magic wand in it you know everything 's in place, and the infrastructure 's in there, and tomorrow morning you wake up and there it is. But um, it needs to be done right. Um, we need to make sure that those things are thought through and thought through carefully. And it's more complex than it appears on the surface. Um, but I would say that uh, this government seems very serious about um, uh, low carbon emission and reducing our carbon footprint through uh, vehicles. And, and uh, they're putting everything in place to make sure it's going to happen all the way from, as you suggest, um, you know, uh, selling the vehicles to towing the vehicles to collision repair and mechanical repair, um, mm-hmm. all the way to the recycling. That's the the big topic now. In in the, that we're talking to government about is um, controlling the recycling of batteries and and EV vehicles. There's, there's some big questions to be answered there.
0: No question about it. Keep up the good work, Adrian. Now, you mentioned a couple of websites, uh, and if people want to learn more, for example, about the PST exemption on used zero emission vehicles, I'm on your website, ara.bc.ca, but you mentioned another one as well. What was that?
3: It's very simple to remember, EV-friendly. Okay. Um, There's an EV-friendly world out there, and and, uh, it's actually... You know i know some people were sort of a little tentative at first and you know where do i charge it and can i and can you get them fixed and the answer is yes you can and and there's plenty of uh, uh, welcome out there for an ev friendly world
0: ev friendly.ca adrian Scoville, president and ceo of the automotive retailers association of bc with a bit of a bit of a good news story on a two dollar a liter weekend (laughs) thanks very much for doing this with us adrian thank you appreciate the time Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live, 6 to 9, weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week.